listening to The Trauma Beat, hosted by me, Tamara Cherry. Check the show notes for anything that might activate your own trauma responses. And as always, like, subscribe, leave a review. Do what you can if you like what you hear. Episode 7, My Conversation with Homicide Survivor, Arlene Stuckless. So Arlene, why don't you just start out by introducing yourself? My name is Arlene Stuckless, and I'm the niece of John Wheeler, who was murdered on August 12, 2020. Arlene, can you tell me a little bit about your Uncle John? Uh, wow, there's so much to tell about John. He was a hard worker. He, um, you know, was awake at 3 a.m. every day, was out the door by 3.30 a.m., you know, worked uh, 14-hour days. And, uh, you know, that was pretty much his life. You know, he'd come home, he'd eat dinner, go to bed and do the same thing. Weekends, he pretty much, you know, spent with family. If we were having gatherings, he was always there. He always came to all the family stuff. Um, Very family oriented. He was a bit of a jokester, you know, pulling pranks and stuff on everyone. Um, And a lot of people don't really know this, but, my mother and my grandmother were actually pregnant at the same time. So my grandmother had John, he was the last one. And my mom had me with my dad, who was the first one. So I was born in December and John was born in February. So I'm actually older than John. And uh, so we had more of like a brother sister type relationship than uncle and niece. Yep. So uh, yeah, we, we uh, got along very well, you know, beat each other up a lot, you know, kind of thing. And (laughs) the usual um, brother sister type relationship. Yeah. Because there were times where, you know, my dad was in Toronto working Mm -hmm. and my mom was still in Newfoundland with us. So we lived with my grandmother and John. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, he got away with everything because he was the baby. And then, you know, we got in trouble for everything. So of course we'd give him his lumps later on. Right. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was, uh, you know, and then when we came to Toronto, they came up here and stayed with us and stuff, right? So there were times John and I were in the same school, right? So yeah, I mean, we were very close. Mm-hmm. And even later on in life, like we were still pretty close. You know, John and I, like, we don't really drink or anything. Like we're not drinkers, but on my birthday and stuff, we would go to a bar. And it was one of those situations where it's like, we would both get really drunk. And then the next day be like, oh my God, we're never doing this again, right? <laughs> you know? And then it's like, I'm like, you're supposed to be a good example. You're my uncle. Exactly. You know? And you'd be like, but you're older than me. Yeah. So, right. So it was always that kind of back and forth type of stuff. And uh, yeah, he was really sensitive, sweet guy, you know, and that's how he was. He'd give you the shirt off his back. Always there to help, like for, with a helping hand, you know, he was just an all round hearted human being, you know? Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing a little bit of him with us. He sounds like a remarkable man. And I love that you have that very special, interesting relationship. Like yeah. your uncle John, but you're older than he is. I just love yeah. that. Um, Arlene, you have had, uh, well, before we get into your interactions with the media, why don't you just start out by telling me what the term trauma-informed journalism means to you? Uh, so I would think it means giving the interviewee more control over the conversation, more choice in the conversation, um, more 
sensitive, you know, questions. And, and I think more like what you did with me, like you sent me an email prior to this interview and told me what you were going to ask. You asked me if there was anything that made me uncomfortable, you know, those kinds of things. I think that's what it would mean to me. What is your first recollection of the media after John died? Um, the first time it was when we saw the detective on TV, uh, the first one they released his name. That's when um, he was being interviewed by the media and he actually released the name and then they cut to a clip interviewing someone who was on the scene. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was heartening for us when we saw that. Mm -hmm. That was very shortly after he was killed, if I remember correctly. Was it the day of? Do you remember? It was that morning. morning yeah. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, it was that. around 9 or 10 a.m. that morning. Um, we had found out earlier that day. Uh, I just recall like my mom getting a phone call from my uncle and him saying, like, all I could hear in the background, like, was my mom say, you know, what do you mean he got shot? And that's when I kind of leapt up and was like, what's happening? So I walked out and I was like, who got shot? Like, what are you talking about? And then I could hear the conversation with my uncle. And I heard him say that he allowed them to release his name. So right away at that point, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many people that are going to find out about this now over the media, like through the news. And I was like, I didn't want one's girlfriend to find out that way. Mm. So my first call initially was to get her informed and say like, you know, so I called her and I was like, you know, you haven't turned on TV yet. You know, you don't, you haven't watched the news. She's like, no, what's going on. And then that's when I kind of had to inform her of what happened. And uh, right away, she was like, I'm coming to your house sort of thing. Cause her and I have been friends before, like her and John got together. So we were pretty close already. And uh, yeah. And she came to my house and we kind of sat and watched the news together. I'm so sorry that you had to make that phone call and, and just that you've been uh, sentenced to walk this awful journey that that other trauma survivors can relate to, but it, uh, I just, I can't imagine it. You, you wrote in your survey as part of my research project, Arlene, that the media did not reach out to your family after your uncle was murdered, uh, but that they did interview someone who had been estranged from him for some time. Can you tell us why this was so upsetting for you? So here's the thing with that. And the reason why it was really upsetting to us not just me, but like all of our family was because John was in a relationship with someone for quite a long time. Like they were together for like 11, 12 years. So the person they interviewed was a part of John's life. Like we're not counting that whatsoever. The problem was when him and like when John and this girl split up, this person that was interviewed, um, he never called him dad. You know, he wasn't even his dad. He wasn't his stepdad. They, they never got married. You know, he was involved in his life, but he kept him at arm's length sort of thing because he was, um, I don't even know what the word is. He's kind of a shady person. 
Mm. You know, he was known to police. He was involved with drugs. He had affiliations with gangs and stuff. So for that person being the first one interviewed, it kind of built a narrative around what could have happened to John. Mm. And we didn't want that to be the direction it was kind of going. And it was kind of confirmed later on on social media when they released everything. And uh, you can see the comments of people coming in there and they're all saying the same thing. They're Mm. like, oh, question that guy or talk to that guy. You know, he's involved somehow. And it was like, you know, of all the people that they could have interviewed, you know, maybe find some background or anything on him before even talking to him because he was not connected to John the way they made it seem like he was. Mm -hmm. You also wrote in your survey, Arlene, about misinformation that was reported in the media, specifically about how your uncle had been killed. Now, I think that anyone would understand why it would be upsetting to hear details of, of how he was killed. Uh, but can you speak to why it was so upsetting to have conflicting information about these details? So the problem with that, I think, is um, like we had heard on one news station that he was shot in the head. And on another news station, it was somebody heard multiple shots, you know, and then another one, it was like, no, it was a single shot to the torso sort of thing. At that point in time, we didn't even know what happened. Like we hadn't even spoken with the detectives yet. You know, they were on their way to our house to talk to us. Um, And even they couldn't give us like that kind of information Mm -hmm. because they hadn't had an autopsy done yet. Mm -hmm. And anybody would know that you have to have an autopsy done in order to determine cause of death and what exactly had happened. So with all these stations putting out all of their, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Guessing, I guess, on what happened. You know, it just, it makes no sense to me. I mean, I think the whole point is to try and deliver accurate information. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to like, just pull things out like that, I mean, the family listens to this. And what you don't realize is that, you know, we're watching the news like everybody else. And hearing those kind of things, you have a million thoughts going through your head. It's like, he got shot in the head. Well, automatically now you're thinking, oh, was this targeted? You know, who would have wanted to do this to him? You know, or, you know, oh, he was shot multiple times, right? Like, was he running away from the scene? Mm -hmm. And all of these are questions that the detectives couldn't even give us Mm -hmm. because he hadn't determined cause of death yet. And they hadn't retrieved any video from the area. And I mean, it was still fresh and new. So for them to put kind of that kind of thing out, it was, it was pretty hurtful mm-hmm. for us. And I guess, I don't know if this was the case in, with, with you guys, but I, I mean, there's many cases where at times the media will get information from a police source or somebody at the scene or whoever that you have not been told as the survivor and because it's holdback information and it's not meant to be made public because it could potentially jeopardize the integrity of right. the investigation. Right. So I suppose that the lesson there for reporters would be, you know, if it's a police officer giving you the information, ask whether, you know, ask yourself whether there's an investigative reason that they would be giving you this information. And if there's not, if they're just doing you a quote unquote favor, 
um, what impact could releasing this information have on the family? And perhaps yeah. ask the person who's telling you the information whether the family is aware of this or whether they can give the family a heads up. Right. Because I, I'm guessing that would have been helpful for you. Definitely. I think definitely it would have been helpful for us. And even with the detective coming over and talking to us, like there are certain things that you can't divulge to us either. Because mm -hmm. if, you know, you don't know what's happening. They don't know who's involved in stuff. So you've got to keep their information kind of close to the vet, like chest too, right? Like they can't give everybody all this information because they don't know who's involved in it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with us wanting to know everything that happened and them not telling us everything that happened right away, you know, it's kind of like, you know, um, what sort of, it's just, it's really hard. It's hard because you've got so many emotions going on and you want to know everything right away, but you know, you got to understand that you can't. Mm -hmm. And then to have like reporters reporting on things that they don't really even know either. And like you said, unless they get it from a police officer, but if a police officer can divulge that information to them, then why can't they divulge it to us? Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just all kinds of confusion, mm -hmm. I guess. You, you did write in your survey though, um, quite positively, it seemed anyway, about the investigator in your case and how you were supported, uh, how, how this investigator supported you and your family with the media. Can you tell me a little bit about that? They like, Detective in our case was pretty amazing. I mean, he he called us up, like first initial time we saw him was on the TV right after it happened. And that day he actually came out to speak with us and, um, you know, gave us a little bit more information about what I guess they could give us. And then when they did the uh, press release for the video that, that day, he called and he had said that, you know, they were going to do this and they were hoping that somebody in the family would be able to talk. Now, right away, my mom was like, no, I'm not doing it. I don't, you know, I'm not going to do it. And then that's when he said, well, you know, do you want to do it, Arlene? And I knew, I'm like, somebody's got to say something, you know, and I would, you know, I'm glad I was the one who did it because I, everybody else in my family even said after they were like, I'm glad you did it because there's no way I could have held it together. Mm. And uh, he gave us options. Like when he called, he said like, you know, you don't have to do this. It would be helpful if you did this. Mm. Um, you know, you, you want to read a statement or do you want to ask, like let them ask questions? Uh, you, you know, he gave us choices, which was great. And even right up to the day the press conference was, you know, he had called us and said, okay, it's going to start at this time. We got there ahead of time. He introduced me to the other police officer that was the press, you know, she was there mm -hmm. and he explained to me exactly what was going to happen, how it was all going to play out. And, and that's exactly how it went. And it was really knowing how it was all going to happen as opposed to, you know, just kind of walking in there and not knowing, you know, especially with the questions, right? Like not knowing what are they going to ask? Right. Mm -hmm. so that's why I chose the statement thing, because I said, I can try and cover everything I can in the statement mm -hmm. as opposed to being asked questions and being kind of put on the spot. So that's the reason why I did the statement. I didn't. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't put this in my list of questions. So please forgive me for that and, and don't answer it if you're not comfortable doing so. But I, I, I was wondering if you could expand on that, the difference between a statement 
and asking questions like how that helped you because that was was it two days after John died or three days after two days after Just John two died that you read that statement um, and that, that police released the the surveillance video that you referred to earlier. Um, how did it help you having that control because you're still in your whirlwind of emotions at that time, trauma brain, all of that stuff. How did it help you having that control of just being able to stand there and read and not have to worry about what questions are going to come your way? I honestly sat there and tried to think of what questions would they want to ask mm. before I even wrote out the statement. You know, we were, I was in more like a, I guess, it, yeah, it's a whirlwind, but it's like a fog, right? You're in a fog. You don't really realize how what's happening and stuff but I took some time that night and just kind of sat by myself in my room to write the state like statement out I thought of what questions they might want to ask I tried to you know get in there that you know what kind of person John was because of the previous footage that was released with that person being interviewed I didn't I felt like this was more of a way of me being able to let people know this is this is who he was it's it, you know he's not associated or affiliated with that this is who he is so it felt good being able to have that um time to you know change people's minds if they were thinking that way sort of thing mm -hmm. you know and uh being able to actually go in up there and ask for help and you know hoping that anybody who watched or saw the news release you know would want to pick up the phone and help Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, having that control, it was really good and, and, and not answering questions, because like I said, it, you kind of feel, you don't know what they're going to ask. So you kind of feel put on the spot and you're like, well, do I answer that? Can I answer that? Mm -hmm. You know, are they going to ask something that I even know answer? Right. So I don't know. It just felt better to do the statement. Hey, time for a quick break. When people find out I wrote a book, they often say something along the lines of, I can't even imagine. It sounds like so much work. And it is. But the researching and writing, for me anyway, were actually the easy parts. The hardest part of writing The Trauma Beat, a case for rethinking the business of bad news, was actually the part when the writing was done. And when I was preparing to reach out to each of the dozens of survivors in the book, survivors like Arlene, to see if they'd like to read what I had written before I sent it off to my editor. By then, I was so acutely aware of the additional harm I could cause by getting something wrong, something that my pre-research self would have thought nothing of, like saying someone was killed instead of murdered, or calling someone a victim when they identify as a survivor, or simply not asking for their consent to send over an excerpt before actually dropping that emotional bomb in their inbox. The weight of responsibility felt, at times, crushing. Survivors like Arlene and the more than 100 others who shared their experiences for the Trauma Beat book and now the Trauma Beat podcast have taught me so much. I hope you feel the same. All right, back to the podcast. Is there any other uh, support that you think would have been helpful for you or your family in dealing with the media? I know not a lot of, uh, not a lot of time has gone by, um, but you know, between then and now? Um, well, you know, it's funny because the detectives have their job to do and then victim services reach out, they reach out to you and, and they, you know, have their part 
to play in the whole thing. Um, I did offer counseling sessions and sessions. So like, you know, an hour a week, it's not a lot. I didn't even do it. I was like, it's fine. You know, like I know that John's girlfriend did pick them up on that. Um, honestly, I think what would have probably been helpful is if someone who had already been through it could have been there to say, Hey, you know, I I've, I've been there. I know what you're going through, you know, cause you can detectives deal with this kind of stuff all the time, you know, cause they're homicide investigators. So they deal with that all the time. Victim services, they, they deal with the same kind of thing. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're just offer support and help, but you know, we, none haven't like been through it Mm -hmm. so to actually be able to have someone to talk to that's been through it might have been a little bit helpful too to kind of navigate us through you know this is what you're going to be dealing with Mm -hmm. for a long time Mm -hmm. and you're in, in saying those words you're speaking broadly about suddenly becoming a homicide survivor not not necessarily just dealing with the media but all of the things that you suddenly have to to deal with the things you have to hear, the things you have to see, the feelings that you'll feel, all of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and and even having other family members and stuff, right? Because I mean, it's not just about the person that's murdered. Like, there's a whole range of other things that are involved in that. You know, um, you know, my kids are even dealing with stuff right now in school from that happening you know so because of course all their friends saw everything on the news so you know they're all like they know they all know what happened so you know it's, it's just all kinds of different things that a lot of people don't like even counselors can't really help you navigate through it's only somebody else that's actually been there can help you know but I think maybe some kind of a support group with with survivors maybe or something like that even if it's just something online Mm-hmm. where someone could direct you to that would be probably a lot more helpful. Like immediately in the immediate aftermath. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like if I would have had so big, sorry, continue. No, like if, if I would have had somebody reach out to me, um, it's already been through it. You know, I could have actually, I would have felt a lot more comfortable talking to them. Than I would a complete stranger about what had just happened. They don't know me personally but into where I am, right? So it's, it kind of just opened you up a little bit more mm-hmm. that. So if, if there was a way of directing, you know, because I mean, I was on social media mm-hmm. and you know, Evelyn, mm-hmm. right? She reached out to me mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was so great to actually be able to talk to someone who's, who's been through trauma like this you know, and it's not a counselor. It's not, you know, a detective. It's not, you know, something like that. It's somebody who's really been there and knows that raw emotion that, that you go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who can say, I know how you feel and you can believe them and feel validated. I I hear that so often in every survivor community, whether it is homicide, traffic fatalities, sexual violence, mass violence, um, the peer support is so important. And so often I hear from people who I, I just wish that I knew that there was something or that I, I, I wish that I knew 
um, there was somebody there immediately or somebody I could call. And unfortunately, um, like it's, it's amazing that Evelyn would just reach out to you like that. I think that the whole system needs to be set up in a way that that stuff is automatic, you know, right? you and that's what I was shouldn't thinking. need to rely on, you know, the kind heart of a stranger who is, you know, not affiliated to any government funded organization or anything like that, uh, to, to get that support anyway. Yeah. Um, so back to the media, uh, Arlene, would you say that you are impacted by the media coverage of other homicides? And if so, how, how are you impacted by it? Um, not just homicides. I mean, anytime I see on the news that there's been a shooting somewhere, it's right away, you know, it sends you into that kind of like panic mode. Um, my daughter, actually, my oldest daughter was working at Yorkdale Mall when there was that shooting inside. Mm -hmm. And it was actually quite traumatic because she had messaged me and she said there were gunshots just went off in the mall. And right away I was freaking out. I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? What's happening? And this was before anything was released on social media or before anything. So she's messaging me and I was like, what's happening? And she's like, we're all huddled in this back room. And and she was like crying and upset. And I mean, she's also been affected with, you know, John's murder. So of course she's got that going through her mind. And, you know, she said, mom, all I heard was this, this gunshots and people just started pouring, like running into my store. I didn't know if one of those people were the ones who had the gun. And, and I'm telling you, it was just, it was insane. So of course, then it comes on the news. Oh, gunshots fired in Yorkdale mall. and I'm just like, Alex, is your, is the door locked? Can anybody get inside? And she's just like, we're on lockdown right now. We can't get in or out of the, the mall. It was terrifying. And anytime I see anything like that, whether it's just police heard gunshots go off or, you know, another person was murdered or somebody got shot. It takes you right back. It takes you right back to that initial moment when you heard your loved one was murdered. And you fear for your kids, you fear for everybody, you know, in those situations. And my daughter actually has her gun license. So she knows what they sound like. So she knew right away. She was like, that's a, that's gunshot, you know? And even though she's, she's trained, you know, to have a like gun, she's got her, her license. She said, it's still just as terrifying when you don't know where it's coming from. Right. Cause it's not a controlled place where you you go into the range and you're shooting your gun and everything's fine. He's like, you don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was terrifying. That was terrifying for all of us. When you say that media coverage of any incident of gun violence brings you right back to that day, do you like, do you feel that emotion like physically Arlene? Like, and, and if you're comfortable doing so, can you just describe what it's like having your body brought and your brain brought back to that moment it's um it's almost like you're hyperventilating like when I first heard that John was shot I said Did he, is he okay is he you know my mom shook her head no right away I just started hyperventilating I couldn't breathe I was like oh my god like I can't believe this is happening um when you hear about something like that on the news the first thing you're thinking is, who do I know in that area? 
right away. I'll, that's what I think. I think, who do I know in that area? Is this another person that I know? Then you go to the, the whole, you know, you trip back to when your loved one was murdered and those emotions kind of go over your body because you actually feel terrified for that next family that's going to get that phone call. You're terrified for, you know, the, the people in the community that have to deal with this all the time. You know, they can't let their kids go out and play in the park because you don't know when somebody's just going to want to drive by and start shooting in the park. Like it's it's gotten to that point where I don't even want to let my kids outside, you know, and my daughter's 27. So it's like, you know, you're like, where, where are you? I'm constantly checking in on that. Like, you know, I heard, hear of somebody, their shots into a car, you know, I'm messaging my daughter, where are you right now? You know, are you anywhere near this area? It's just a constant range of, you know, anxiety and uh, it, you got certain triggers that kind of trigger it, mm -hmm. but I can also kind of control that now, you know, like I'll see it on the news. I'll hear somebody got murdered. I think about, okay, there's another family that's going to be going through the same trauma, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not over yet for us. Mm -hmm. And it's been about a year and a half for you now, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So considering the impact that media coverage of a totally unrelated case can have on you, given your experience losing your uncle, do you have any advice for journalists on things that maybe they should or shouldn't do when they're reporting on cases like this, whether it's gun violence, homicide, any sort of traumatic loss? Is there anything that they should be considering in terms of lessening the potential negative impact on any number of other survivors out there who might be watching, you know, not to mention the, the primary victim survivors in that case. Um, I'm not sure anything will lessen it really. I mean, just even hearing of shots being fired somewhere, it doesn't necessarily have to be even a murder, just shots being fired somewhere. It's, it's traumatizing, you know, it just kind of brings you back to that moment. Um, but I can't even say not to report on them because we want to know what's happening in our neighborhoods, mm -hmm. right? So we're more aware of things. Um, it's, that's a really hard question. Like, I, I'm well, not too I wonder sure. if there's, um, like when I think about the different elements that reporters use or that I used when I was a reporter to tell stories about uh, gun violence, for example, if there was cell phone video, we might use cell phone video that includes like the sound of gunfire or, um, you know, images from the scene that might show blood or, you know, an emergency run to hospital and, and, you know, stuff like that. I'm wondering if there's anything that you see in media coverage that is more difficult for you um, than, you know, if there's anything that if, they, if, if the media were to stop using that stuff, if it would lessen the impact on you, lessen the negative impact? Huh. Honestly, all of that, mm. you know, if they didn't put up the, the footage of, you know, seeing the blood on the ground, like just even saying that takes me back to seeing the video where they were zooming in on where John's body was. Mm. And actually one news station had video footage of from somebody on the balcony videotaping and the footage was of him lying there and the paramedics actually trying to work on him, you know, and that was pulled. I don't even know what happened to that, but it was, it was put out there and then it was pulled. 
You saw that on the news, like on me in mainstream media or social media. Do you remember? It was on social media. Wow. Somebody posted it on social media and then it was pulled somehow. I don't even know, but it was a, a cell phone video of yeah. John lying there and paramedics trying to work on him. And then it, you know, it was just, it was gone. Um, things like that. But it, it was gone, but it still remains. It's, in your oh, brain. it's, it's always going to be burned into my brain. Always. Mm-hmm seeing like them make an emergency ambulance run, right? Seeing the, the person or them working on somebody, bringing them into the, the hospital, those kind of clips. We don't need to see that. You know, if you wanna, you wanna report on it, just, you know, say, um, you know, a vic- like somebody was shot, you know, they don't even have any, uh, like their identity or something, right? So just be like, you know, there were shots fired here, you know, they don't need to show video footage or, you know, the gruesome uh, blanket over the body type situations, you know, in uh, auto wrecks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there are certain things that people don't need to, to witness because like you said, once it's seen, it can't be unseen, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, verbally reporting is one thing, but those video clips and all of that, yeah, that should be reconsidered. And when you're, when your trauma is triggered and you're brought back to that day, are those images, the ones that come into your mind? Oh yeah. yeah. Always, always just seeing the, the clip of, you know, the pine cones that they had, like those, uh, yep. the hazard cones around. Yep. Yeah. So those, uh, his shirt there, you know, the gray shirt there with the blood stain. Yeah. All of that comes back. All of it. That's really, I think that's a really valuable point that you raise because it speaks to the fact that it only takes once it only takes one time showing one of those images and you might only be playing it as a reporter once but it can replay over and over again with any other shooting that you might cover in the years months weeks to come whatever and it can be impacting countless people i mean count countless people hundreds of people in the city of toronto uh, thousands of people, homicide survivors, that sort of thing. Um, we, we spoke about the advice you'd give to journalists. First, before I go on to the next question, do you have any other advice to journalists that you'd, you'd like to share? Um, you know, it's, it's also got to do with their own mental health, right? I mean, they're the ones reporting on these things and it's got to affect them as well. So, you know, if they could put themselves in the shoes of the victim's family, And what would I want to see on the news, you know, or what would I want to witness or, you know, those kind of things, I think putting yourself in somebody else's position, I think might even be helpful because God forbid they ever had to go through that kind of thing, but even them just reporting on it must do something to their own mental health. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, lessening those kind of things for even their benefit would help. You raise an excellent point. Journalists, uh, something that I talk, I've been talking about more and more, and but it's not really talked about broadly in journalism, is the idea of moral injury, which is the injury done uh, by doing things that you find morally reprehensible. So if as a journalist, you put yourselves in the shoes of a homicide survivor, and that makes you think, I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be knocking on this door, or I shouldn't be showing this image, and you do it anyway, you can be causing an injury to yourself, a moral injury, and doing that over and over again uh, can absolutely add up. And then right. there's also the vicarious trauma. So 
Um, yeah, that's very insightful of you, Arlene, to, to bring that up. Yeah. Um, your, your advice, what about in terms of any other survivors, homicide survivors who are suddenly faced with media attention? Do you have any advice you want to share with them? Um, only do what makes you comfortable. You know, if, if you're being asked questions that you don't want to answer, just say, I don't want to answer. You know, I, I don't feel comfortable answering that, or I don't know the answer to that. You know, the not knowing isn't a problem, right? Like, I mean, there's lots of things I don't know. I'm not afraid to say it, right? Um, yeah, um, make a statement if you don't feel comfortable taking questions. A uh, statement can cover you know, anything you want to put out there and you can, you know, use that time to even um, change the narrative of the situation. If it's going one way, you kind of want to change it to something else and take time, like just take time. Like if you don't want to talk, don't talk, you know, you don't have to do this. Like you don't have to, you know, talk to anyone really. Um, yeah. Only do what makes you comfortable. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. What about in terms of people whose jobs it is to, or volunteer position it is to support survivors such as a victim services worker or, um, or volunteer court support workers like victim witness assistance program in Ontario or even homicide and investigators. Do you have any other advice you'd like to offer them in terms of how they can support survivors with the media? Do exactly what the detective did with us. You know, keep us informed on what's happening. Um, I mean, I, I would have to admit, I would have liked to get a little bit more information than they gave us. But, you know, I also said that to them, you know, because there were certain things it was like, you know, we wanted to know what was happening at every, you know, point in time. Because when you don't hear from them for a week, you're, you're thinking, are they even working on this anymore? Like, you know, or, or is this just, you know, Time, they're just you know fluffing off they're not doing anything mm -hmm. and we didn't even call them every day you know we didn't call the detectives every day we gave them a week at a time so we were like they have to be doing something within this time we're giving them mm -hmm. right um you know as for the media thing yeah just keep us informed of what's happening give us a choice you know if we want to speak uh you know put more control into our hands sort of thing, because at that point in time, you're usually feeling like there, you have no control left, mm -hmm. right? I mean, your loved one was just murdered, right? So you're like, everything's out of control. So at least giving us back some of that control is helpful. Um, victim services, keep us informed on what's happening in the whole court processing. You know, it helps for them, even if there's nothing to report, to just give us a call mm -hmm. and say, you know, yeah, there's nothing much happening right now, but just reaching out to see how we're doing, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah, just checking in with the family, you know, mm -hmm. make sure they're, they're taking care of themselves. You have given uh, so much insight, Arlene, into so much of your experience. I'm so grateful. I wonder, is there anything else that you wish that any of these different stakeholders, whether they're victim service providers, investigators, members of the media, would understand about what it's like to be a homicide survivor? I would like for them to understand that even though the case is close to them, it's never closed for us. So 
Oh, even when the, like the, the criminal is caught and put behind bars, or even when, you know, the trial is done and the person has been convicted or put away, it doesn't end for us there. You know, their job is finished, but it doesn't, it's not over for us by a long shot, you know, cause we have to continue living the rest of our life without this person that was so close to us. And we have to continue witnessing on TV more horrific murders, you know? Um, and then even seeing the same detective on the news reporting on another murder is a trigger, right? So it's like, yeah, it's not over for us by a long shot. So even though that, you know, things are said and done on your end, like just don't think for a second that it's finished for us. Mm -hmm. Continuing to live with it. Yes. Is there anything else, Arlene, that you wanted to discuss or you had made any notes about that I didn't manage to get to or steer you towards you wanted to mention now? Um, not really. I mean, you pretty much touched on everything really well, actually. You know, all the questions that you sent were pretty, you know, informed. Um, no, I, I think really if, if, you, if it comes down to somebody, you know, being in this position, I think number one, they have to take care of themselves, you know, even with the media, you know, reporting on these things, you got to think of yourself. You've got to think of your own mental health. Don't ever put yourself in a position, like you said, that's making you question what you're doing morally. Um, and it's the same thing for me, you know, like every day, you know, I, I go through life like that, you know, if I have to second guess myself, then there's no point in doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to continue trying to think on the positive side of life and, and uh, yeah. And just, like I said, don't think it's over for us by a long shot. Thank you so much, Arlene. And thank you again for sharing a little bit of John with us. Oh, I'm yeah. Gonna be, I'm going to be smiling uh, throughout the day thinking about that special relationship that you two had. And yeah. I hope you will be too. Oh, I will. Oh, I will. Definitely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay.